It's been a bit of a journey for me preparing this for tonight, more so even than normal. Um, I realize because I'm, I'm trying to, for the first time, give, give voice to something that's like very, it's been very, very close to me for a long time, but I've never tried to say it. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But I don't know if any of you can relate to that, like something, something that's really in there and functioning in my life in, in a significant way, but I've, I've never tried to talk about it. So um, looking around after this, we just did a seven-day silent retreat here. And after that, I was kind of looking for language for this, and I was doing one of my favorite things. I'm kind of pouring through books and Dharma talks and that sort of stuff. And the, well, the theme that I was coalescing around was transformation and recognizing Zen as a path of transformation. And I was, I was trying to characterize just like just what that flavor was, say, in, you know, in my 20s, when I, I knew that my life was about to really change, but I didn't know how. I didn't know how it would change. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, oh, I really have to do this thing. I was in the midst of this kind of transformation. So anyway, I've been trying to like, give language to the spirit of that. And so tonight, I, wa I wanted to talk about that aspect or emphasize that side or part or um, piece of Zen practice, which is the fact that while there are so many ways to relate to Zen in a fruitful way, one that really inspires me is Zen practice as a metamorphosis, that literally engaging in it wholeheartedly changes your life. Not to promise too much right at the beginning, you know. You can also totally do it lightheartedly and that's great. That's great also. But I, I wanna talk I wanna talk about something something in there for me. So I think uh, I think we're in an interesting place because we have this whole cultural heritage of narratives of transformation. Like we've got we can go all the way back to the Greek myths, of course, and beyond that. Joseph Campbell has this great bit about myths as, quote, the clues to the spiritual potentialities of the human life. The ways we can change. And we've got the narratives of all these people who have lived transformative lives and transformed people as a result. Obvious is the Buddha. But I think of uh, the first female monastic, Mahapajapati, or Patachara, who was uh, just a stunningly powerful teacher among the, the female monastics um, and so many others. I'm sure you can think of trans transformative figures, the life of Christ. I also think of Amaji. Does anyone know the hugging saint? Amaji, check her out. Yeah, so break a heart open with a hug. And then we've got these narratives of social movements, of course. I think of Gandhi and Ahimsa. I think of the uh, civil rights movement. Um, and inspired in all of them is this belief that we can change. And the fact that that, I mean, that fuels things in our lives, like all of this research about human potential and all this also very fruitful research about self-improvement. Um, 
And in some way, they're in touch with this, this narrative that keeps coming back of death and rebirth. Transformation, metamorphosis. And in Zen, we have this um, 10 ox herding pictures, which I won't go into in much depth, but just so you know, it's there too. Maybe because I've been reading haiku recently, but uh, I came into contact with this, this, um, this pilgrimage in Japan called the Shikoku Pilgrimage. Anyone, anyone know about this? It's like southern Japan, uh, southwest of Kobe, Osaka, and Kyoto. And it's a circle on an island, the island of Shikoku. And it's to commemorate the founder of Shingon Buddhism, Kukai, who is said to have wandered from temple to temple. And now, now it's like seekers and tourists alike. You know how these things go. Seekers and tourists alike can go to the island and do a segment, or they can do the whole thing. But you dress in this white garb. It's like it's meant to represent a shroud, a conical hat to pr pr protect you from the sun. You carry a walking stick and coins and incense to offer it at the temple. Not only are you supported by all this, but spontaneous almsgiving. Like the locals will come, well, they see you coming, and the, they recognize the uniform, so to speak. And they come out and they feed you to support your, support your journey. So you go to one temple, right? You chant the Heart Sutra. You chant the mantra of the, the enshrined deity. And then you go offer incense and coins to often the, the image of Kukai, this founder. And then you do it 88 times. 750 miles to walk around this island. Apparently it takes somewhere on the order of 45 days. Through these four provinces that are each supposed to represent stages of the path. Arousing the thought of enlightenment, the um, discipline of practice, bodhi or awakening, and then entering nirvana. Sounds pretty amazing. Um, and I think it, in, it inspired me while I was thinking about this talk because I've, I have this feeling like the person who leaves on day one is not the person who comes back on day 45. That you're, you're changed through the process. Maybe. People go for a lot of reasons. I love this. I was checking it out. On the, there, there's a Shikoku website. Um, so I was checking out some of the reasons, and I was talking to a, a good Dharma friend who's done a, done a lot of training, Buddhist and otherwise, and he does a lot of these solo camping retreats where he'll go out on a sort of pilgrimage of his own. And the thing he wanted to impress upon me was that his belief is that the spirit with which you engage, the journey, the pilgrimage, the solo camping retreat, has everything to do that has everything to do with what happens. He said, I think that's the most important point, is the spirit with which you engage. So the Shikoku site, they say pilgrims go for many reasons. Um, I liked this. There's the, oh, thank you for grabbing the door. The desire to experience an, quote, unadulterated version of Japanese cultural identity. Uh, some go out of filial piety. Some do it to gain merit. Some do it to become a better person or go on an adventure. 
and quote, very rarely, a pilgrim will walk to seek enlightenment. I really like that that's not why everybody goes. Yeah, um, maybe one of, my, one of my unexpected caveats is like, pouring, pouring yourself wholeheartedly into a path of metamorphosis, it's, it's like not for everybody, but that's a big ask, and it's hard. So I was actually heartened when I saw pilgrims, oh, very rarely someone will go for seeking enlightenment. So I was poking around at the words like I like to do, and apparently the word transformation has more Latin connections. It means things like changing shape. It's related to something like religious conversion, which I read that and I bristled a little. I felt like a little, oh, my, my proselytizer alarm went off, and I was like, uh, I don't know about that. I have, I have very weak proselytizing instincts. But um, I found that it was related to the Greek metamorphosis. Apparently the meaning was transformation. Going further, this prefix of meta apparently over the course of time has changed so much that it incorporates such complexity. I was fascinated by this so much that I wanted to share. It incorporates both like um, being higher and in the midst of, and beyond as well as between. Are you like picking up the contrast here in this one, this one word? It includes the uh, instrument by means of which you do something and what you're pursuing. Metta apparently over time has come to point to all these things. And I like how multivalent it is. So that's something about metamorphosis in words. But what about the world we live in, you know? Joseph Campbell said, what's the meaning of a flower? We, say, we see metamorphosis in the natural world in fish. We see it in tadpoles turning into frogs. Salamanders do this. Um, thanks, Mireya. And then perhaps, perhaps most famously is an image of transformation, the caterpillar. I was thought about, I've been thinking about caterpillars a lot this last week. Grubby larva, pupa, spit it out, it's silk, makes itself that chrysalis, and then it becomes an adult, you know? And why I was so drawn to the caterpillar becoming the butterfly this week was that we might think, might think of change, transformation, as a surface-level shift, you know? Like, oh, I'll just change this one little thing about myself. Um, get a new haircut, go shopping, buy a new robe. But the caterpillar literally turns to muck. Like it, uh, it said, at least, this may or may not be true, it said it completely dies. Its consciousness is gone. And then the magic of reformation happens. And there's something about how deep and thoroughgoing that is that 
touches into the metamorphosis of Zen practice. Nothing is left out. So talk about Zen explicitly. I just wanted, I wanted to highlight these three, three parts of our tradition that I'm, I'm thinking about as Dharma gates of metamorphosis. First one, most obvious, Zazen. Um, while Dogen called this the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, anything gets to come and anything changes and goes. I'm thinking, for example, of like a vibration comes to the ear. It coalesces as a moment of consciousness and hearing. It shifts, it vibrates, it changes, and then it fades away. We didn't even do anything. We were just attentive, and this transformation happened in our consciousness. And something in the magic of Zazen, just repeatedly doing that over and over, something about the clinging and the shape of our life, the shape of our suffering gets loosened, and we turn a little bit to muck. <laughs> start to become something new. The second Dharma gate of our practice, the one we just finished, Seshin. Seven day, often seven days of silent sitting, sometimes five, sometimes three. In this case, it capped a two-month practice period, this two-month dedicated period of practice where we all said as a group, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this together. We don't know what's going to happen. Ready, go. Um, Ryushin, Paul, who was leading, said it's amazing, it's amazing how vigorously we cling to our daily routine. It's like our, our normal daily routine. He, talk, he did this in a Dharma talk during Seshin. And how amazing it is that three days in to Seshin, we've established a completely new normal, completely da new daily routine. Maybe it's by virtue of all the zazen. Maybe it's by virtue of the fact that we don't get to make that many choices about what we do for those seven days. But we find our way to get our coffee, right? And we find our way to get our sleep and our food. And you know, we establish a new normal that would have just seemed impossible three days ago. Zenju Earthland Manuel, Manuel uh, talks about Seshin as uh, prolonged rituals of seeing and listening. And she wrote this about one of her experiences, and I, I just wanted to give this to you as the flavor. She writes, on the fourth day of silence, the world outside the walls no longer exists. I am speechless. And it's not because there are no words on my tongue. There's a forest with 90 people surrounding me, animals in the wilderness. Their voices are no longer, but there's a grunt or two. Some wander the forest, stomping. Some move quietly. Some are flying. The cloth of our robes rustles. Chanting is soothing when the mind goes places in the dark silence. And when I come upon this place as if lounging on a bouncing branch, I know that if I come into my mind, I'll become afraid that the branch will snap. In the meantime, I'm a bird. Zenju and Seshin. 
I think of Sashin as our, our, our tradition's own version of the Shikoku pilgrimage. It's like the person who enters the Sashin is not the person who comes out often. And then the third, these sort of Dharma gates of metamorphosis, our ceremonial life. Um, there's something really interesting, that I, uh, interesting way I was seeing our morning liturgy over the course of Sashin. We literally call it entering ceremonial space when we come, into, come in to do service. It's like we walk through the, we walk through the door right there and the, the posture changes, the gestures change, we don't talk. You know, there's a way we move, there's a way we relate. We enter into a sort of chrysalis, just like Sashin is this seven-day chrysalis. But for those 20, 30 minutes of morning service, we're like, we're here. And then the first thing we do, I think of as like a, it's a liturgical summary of the whole path. Where before we got here, we, we chant, we chant a sort of celebration of Buddha's robe. And then we come in, we bow, and we take responsibility in this formal way. We avow everything harmful we've ever done. And that's, pretty, that, that's pretty gutsy for first thing in the morning. You know, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna put my hands together with everyone here standing in front of the Buddha and say, not in any kind of personal way, but just in this liturgical formula, I totally take responsibility for everything I've ever done. I'm responsible for that. And then we bow and we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I think that's the, that's the, that can be the summary of the whole zazen path. That we, we sit down on our cushion. Even if we don't want to, everything we've ever done comes to visit. And the only way is to be honest that that's there. And by continuing to take refuge in awareness, we're taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma and the Sangha. So these three modes, zazen, sashin, and ceremony. I'm gonna skip a bunch, but I wanna tell really, I wanna tell two stories. I might have to write this as an essay to get the whole thing out. I think one characteristic There's, there's a characteristic realization that is, it's the prerequisite for deep change in my observation. And that is the recognition, what I'm doing is not working. Whatever, the, whatever that is. I think in the recovery models, they call that a bottom. I don't know what, I don't know what language you wanna, you wanna use for that, but. Despite my best intentions, what I'm doing is not working. And then there's this resolve that arises. Now it's time for something different. I was thinking about narratives of transformation and one of the most compelling modern examples that I think is probably wi widely known uh, is Ram Dass. Nods if you know Ram Dass, yeah. Um, yeah, 
I'm going to tell, tell his story just briefly because it's so compelling how, how complete his transformation was, right? He, he was sort of top of his game. He's a Harvard professor, right? Uh, 60s, I think, is the situation. And um, he's got all the status, the power, the roles. Like, he, he has made it in that world. And he, as he's writing his story, that he sort of closes the I have made it piece with, it was a hustle. You know, like, uh, I'm, ju I'm, I'm putting on the show, but I, can't, I always kind of feel like I'm faking it. it. was part of his deal. One thing leads to another. I'll spare you some of the details. He has a really, he has a really intense psychedelic experience, which I actually don't teach about and... I kind of don't want to open the can, <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> um, it's a lot of responsibility to talk about that. But I, I still thought it, it, it's worth bringing him into the room because his, his transformation is so significant. He started to see that his identities were actually not who he was. And he did this over and over and over again, ultimately realizing that his psychedelic pursuits also didn't fulfill what he was looking for. So he kind of like always was looking around for how can I make this last? And who's someone who really knows the thing? Who's someone who really knows like the depth and the heart of this transformation and how to live from there? So he goes on this like wild trip to India. He's following around this young yogi who's like in his 20s. Like, uh, and I'm, in t I'm reading this and interpreting it kind of as like a move of desperation. It's like he's tried everything. But there's something really compelling about this yogi, and he follows him around India, eventually leading him to this transformative encounter and practice with Neem Karoli Baba. And the details are fabulous. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just leave this as a, as a cliffhanger, but his, his relationship with Neem Karoli Baba and the practice that he did, that, was, that opened him in such a thoroughgoing way that that is what he was looking for. And then, who was Dr. Richard Alpert became Ramdas. Ramdas was born. And then Ramdas becomes this, for us, becomes this, this very important teaching figure for, for many of the teachers who taught in the original generation at Spirit Rock. Um, one of them, he actually, like one of, one of the teachers that's well known, went to his, went to his teacher, Ramdas, told him all about this problem he was having. This is after a stroke. And Ramdas said, uh, you know, for you, it's really simple. You need to make the journey from here to here. That was it. That was it. Hmm. I want to acknowledge just briefly some of the reasons I think maybe we don't hear so much about transformation or about metamorphosis. And I think it, it may be in part because we have this really strong current in the tradition, which is just to be alive is enough. And that is totally true. I'll keep teaching that like every yes. Just to be alive is totally enough. Someone coming out of Sashin this week actually said part of, like, part of what she realized was, oh, we're just trying to be here, not doing anything. And that had the weight of 
transformation and change for her. I sometimes wonder if, if the depth and power of metamorphosis that's available kind of gets lost in our, in our kindly way and our like everyday Zen approach. So it's, it's a really, I think, kind of a, a tightrope to walk to value both of those. I think, I think the tradition's multivalent in that way, where we can hold up and celebrate the everyday. It's one of our tradition's slogan, uh, slogans. Um, Careful attention to detail is the wind of the family house. Just taking very good care of what's right here. Nothing more is needed. And this transformative potential of waking up. Both of those are there. So the last story I'll tell. The haiku. It's Basho. I, just, uh, I was just exposed to this book called um, uh, Narrow Road to the Interior. Basho, after a life, uh, not a lifetime, but a, a career of being a haiku poet, it's an amazing writer. He, get, he goes kind of through this, this bit of depression. And one of the ways that he finds himself coming out of it is he will take these journeys. He'll go on these pilgrimages around, around Japan. He writes one that's translated as the travelogue of weather-beaten bones. And then he, he comes back and it's like beginning of the year and he's already plotting when he's gonna get up and go to, the, to do the next one. And then he writes what would become his opus, which is this um, narrow road to the interior. So you'll see, you'll see him going, almost like the Shikoku pilgrimage, you'll see him going like temple to temple, making offerings, describing the scenes as he's going along the way, writing, writing haiku. Uh, sometimes he's like, taking shelter in these fishing huts, like three days of intense wind and rain. Sometimes he's like living the high life in the city with haiku poets and whatnot, but this journey. And he wrote this really beautiful bit right after his companion, Sora, who's a student and also his companion, had to leave the trip ill. And he wrote, one night like a thousand miles, as the proverb says, and I too listened to fall winds howl around the same temple. But at dawn, the chanting of sutras, gongs, ringing, awakened me. An urgent need to leave for distant Echizen province. As I prepared to leave the temple, two young monks arrived with inkstone and paper in hand. Outside, willow leaves fell in the wind. And he wrote this poem for the, for the monks. Sweep the garden. All kindnesses Falling willow leaves repay. Then he writes, my sandals already on. I wrote it quickly and departed. So maybe just a few words to round out for now. In Paul Ryushin's talk on the day we had this ceremony, this Shuso ceremony, he was, he was moving around this theme of how we... Um, we dream up a world and we shape it and we relate to it in ways that help wake us up. I hear in that parentheses, the spirit in which we do this really matters. 
the intention we have really matters. I have this vision for the Yuz community as being one that's big enough to hold all kinds of relationships with practice. And this, this one just being one of them. But tonight I, I really felt like, even inspired doesn't feel right. I just, I feel like really something coming out of my heart wanting to talk about this metamorphosis side of, uh, of the Zen tradition. So um, please take it in balance with everything else that this, this tradition can hold. Maybe I'll close with the, the words that Basho, Basho wrote about his departure, since that's where we all are. He said, with these first words from my brush, I started my journey. Those who remain behind watch the shadow of a traveler's back disappear. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>